We are jumping into another episode of the Feast Podcast. Today, I'm joined by none other than Aparna Dinakaran. And also, I've got a little cameo appearance from Willem Pinar. You all should know who he is. And Aparna has got an awesome story. She was working at Uber, working on the Michelangelo platform before branching off and starting her own thing which is Arise AI. If you have not heard of it, I highly recommend you go and check it out. We'll leave links to that in the description below. And so now let's just get into it. Aparna, welcome to the Feast Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on here. Thank you so much, Demetrius. Thanks, Willem, for inviting me. I'm excited to, to be here, excited to see where the conversation takes us today. Yeah, and I think the main thing that we wanted to talk about with you today was a lot of how, because I know I've heard talk from Willem and from you about how you're integrating Arise and Feast. And I also saw a blog post that you did, I think back uh, in March, if I'm not mistaken, on the three tools that you need in ML ops. And one was a feature store, one was an evaluation store, and the other was a model store. And we can get into that in a second. But I think the real question that a lot of people probably have on their mind is what exactly is an evaluation store? So can you break that down for us real quick before we jump into the nitty gritty? Absolutely. And since you mentioned that blog post, that blog post was, I, I think, just one of the most highly read blogs that I've ever written. And nice. a bit of that was just, there was so much interest around, there's a lot of ML ops tools. And, you know, if you ever look at one of those, you know, it, tool grid maps, there's like hundreds of tools on the map. And so I think just saying, these are the only three that you need. And, you know, I, I think it, it did pretty well. Um, and you'd be curious how many people have actually repeated that back to me now. They're like, well, I only need three tools. I need a feature store and I need a model store and I need an evaluation store. And I'm like, hey, that's that's awesome. Um, Sounds but, familiar. <laughs> but what I was gonna say was, um, so your question was, what's an evaluation store? Um, so I myself did not come up with that term. It was actually from Josh Tobin. Um, and I just thought it was an amazing term to explain essentially what, what you know, the, the ML observability and monitoring vertical really kind of you know, stored and was used for. And so the evaluation store, and sometimes I call it the inference store, but it really stores all of the different inferences that the model is making. Um, it stores the inferences from production. It can also store the inferences from pre-production environments. So things like how did the model perform on the training data set? How did it perform on a test data set? to actually compare it to the production uh, inferences. And, and the goal of, the, of kind of the evaluation or inference store is track all of the inferences that the model is making to provide fine-grained analysis of performance. And so models are very performance-based. You're constantly trying out multiple different versions or deploying uh, canary deployments in order to figure out which version of the model is actually doing the best. And so, the evaluation store not only should help you track all your inferences, but surface up kind of how is the model doing well 
where is the model doing really well? Where is the model not doing really well? How do I slice and dice different segments of, of performance and use that to actually inform how to build the next or better version of my model? Mm -hmm. um, and so on top of that, typically, you know, anyone who says, you know, they're using or building some kind of evaluation or inference store typically have some type of monitoring for the production inferences. Typically, when they get alerted, have some kind of ways to not just look at the aggregate stats or kind of averages, but also drill down and look at, you know, if the performance is not doing well overall, where's it really not doing well? If the models are drifting, you know, what's causing the model to drift? And so um, really helping you surface up issues, troubleshoot those issues, and ultimately feed back into your ML lifecycle so that you're constantly building new and better versions of your model. And if I understand this correctly, it's also making sure there's like a gate on each step of the process so that you don't have things that are making their way downstream that shouldn't be. It's like you get, you're constantly evaluating to make sure that everything is up to par before it moves on to the next stage. Absolutely. That's, that's a great way of putting it. And so that's, that's a really big part of why people typically, you know, start logging their pre-production inferences into the platform so that you're not just caught off guard, you're in production and it's not performing well, the model's not doing so hot. You're actually capturing those insights from when it was built, from when you're testing it on different validation data sets. And so you exactly like the way you said it, similar to how you have CI, CD uh, build checks and software, you want to check these build checks for models per se before it actually enters, enters production. Yeah, that makes complete sense. So then in practice, what does this actually look like? Is it just a Python package that you're using or how do we make sure to flag these different pieces and how do you know which part of the life cycle you're living in? Yeah, that's that's a great great question. So typically the logging, so what you're using to actually log the pre-production or the production data sets is a Python package. But you know, again, because you're the evaluation or inference store starting to delve into that production environment and sometimes people use Go in production or Java in production or a number of different languages. The language itself doesn't really matter, but essentially just some kind of SDK or APIs to log those inferences to what you're calling an evaluation store, some kind of data source where you're actually tracking all of the inferences. And then on top of that data sources, you know, call it a whole bunch of services that run your monitoring, that run your, uh, you know, uh, troubleshooting workflows that run your um, let's say insights or recommendations. So, you know, on top of that data store that's actually tracking all of those inferences, you have a whole bunch of services that are actually doing those, you know, surfacing, troubleshooting, and improving kind of modules on top, if you, if you can think about it that way. So I had a question as a follow-up there. Um, so certainly when you are there are classes of problems that you can detect there. Um, and uh, I mean, one of which is like model specific ones, like, you know, 
how a specific model performs for a specific class of users or in a specific, um, you know, there are specific inputs coming to the model and, it, you know, it, it does well with a certain distribution, maybe it's doing well at detecting, you know, you know, users that are power users, but it doesn't do well with the long tail or something like that. Are you mostly focused or, you know, I think one of the things that really ground this conversation is if we had an idea of like the areas in which you are focusing right now in detecting problems, whether it's mostly model centric um, or evaluation around the model, or if it's also a little bit upstream data centric, like the inputs that feed to the model and whether that's one dimension, the other dimension is, is it comparative? Is it across models or is it, you know, focused on specifically a single model and being able to evaluate that in kind of like a single, as a single artifact? Yeah, no, that, boom, your question, I got pages for answers, but let, let, let's jump into it. <laughs> this, is, this is super interesting. So I, I like to think about it as kind of, you know, what the evaluations are, or in general, ML observability is focused on is kind of three, you can think about it as like three pillars. There's the model, there's the data, and then there's the service itself that is deploying that that ML model or is responsible for things like the input feature lookup and then deploying that model and then monitoring the application that's serving that model. So if you think about it as kind of model, data, and, and service. And on the model side, you know, what I typically mean by that is the performance aspect of that model. So you know, if you're measuring things like AUC or F1 score or recall, whatever your metrics are that, that you're typically measuring, you know, tracking those performance metrics is, is really important. And, you know, it really is comparative as well. So if I'm comparing one version of a model versus another model and seeing where does, you know, the newest version or let's say, you know, there's a, you know, we actually didn't invent this ourselves but DevOps and data ops also have it. It's this idea of a baseline. So, hey, right. here's kind of what I'm expecting it to look like or what I'm expecting the performance to be, compare it to what it's actually like in production. And so you can set up a baseline when you're comparing performance. Hey, here's what I'm expecting from my test set or my validation set. This is what I'm expecting my performance to be. When it's not, I can actually I actually want to get alerted and then I want to know what's pulling it down. Why is my model performance no longer at, let's say, 90% accuracy or whatever my AUC score I'm expecting is, you know, is it because I'm seeing more of, you know, if I'm just thinking about the advertising world, um, is it because I'm seeing more uh, you know, different domains or different sites that I'm not expecting and I didn't use when I actually trained my model? Um, if I'm looking at a use case like fraud transactions, is it because I'm getting certain user types or certain transactions that I didn't I didn't have a lot of in my training data set? And so you're always kind of to in order to troubleshoot the root cause of the issue, you're comparing it against some kind of baseline to get at is the performance off, um, or or you know what's kind of the root cause of of what's pulling it down. And so that that's kind of on the on the model side. Does that make sense, actually? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I think let me drill into that a little bit. So let's say there's assume some, there's some kind of baseline, and then assume there's a new run and a new model, and it goes live, and it, you're you know logging predictions, but training and online side. Presumably, if you detect some kind of deviation there, like a drop in performance, you want to investigate. 
Um, yeah. So what are the kinds of tools that you provide or you know, diagnostic functionalities that users can use to kind of figure out what exactly yeah. went wrong there? Yep. And so one of the diagnostic tools that we do is, you know, instead of just looking at the average, here's kind of overall performance, we actually surface up every feature, feature value combination as, you know, as an underlying kind of performance segment. So let me give you an example. Let's say state was an input into my model. I'm not only looking at across all my states, what's my performance, I'm looking at, you know, how's my performance when state equals California? How's my performance when state equals Georgia? So feature and feature value combination, every single, and, and sometimes it can be multi combinations too. So if I want to do state and city, but every combination of kind of, you know, feature, feature value is its own segment of performance that we actually surface up so that when you're drilling down and you're looking at, okay, overall performance doesn't look great. But when I look into my states, I see performances significantly off in New York. That's the state that's that's mm -hmm. pulling down my model. And then let me bring in the baseline. I can actually look at, well, what was New York performing, you know, in a previous time, in a previous time, and how's New York doing now? So you can actually use baseline, you know, performance expectations for New York compared to, you know, the new version that you built, performance for New York, and compare and see, okay, now let me filter down, let's say just in New York and see what's actually pulling down the New York segment. So you can actually you know, start building this troubleshooting funnel down feature, feature value combinations and start drilling down to what are segments of your model that are underperforming that are bringing down your average. Did that, that answer yeah. your question? Yeah, that really answers the question well. I think one of the things that's clear there is that it's, it's very data centric, which makes a lot of sense because the features are a core part of what you know, the model's trained on and how it'll perform. So I think a question then naturally becomes, how do you integrate with these systems when a lot of teams today, yeah, feature stores are really growing in adoption, but a lot of teams are building their own systems. So they're building their own model serving stacks, they're building their own feature stores, even if they're you know, a large group of the uh, user base or adopting technologies like Feast and Tecton, um, surely you need to have a lot of APIs in order to integrate or means for which you, through which users publish data. Uh, I guess that's my next question. Is that something that is the front and center for you? And do you take a kind of opinionated approach or a, a limited approach where you're, or is, let me split this, you can have an opinionated constrained approach where the user has to uh, conform to your data model or mm -hmm. do you try and go to where the users are today? Yeah. Great question. So, you know, the I'd say you know there's a balance here, right, between remaining model agnostic. So what we do is, you know, we don't model and and really kind of framework agnostic. And so, at a high level, what the Rise platform takes in is input. So what are features? Um, of course, other metadata um, prediction. So what was the output of the model? and then the actuals or the ground truth. And we also log explainability or feature importance values as well. And so if you think about that, that's kind of the you know, data model for what we track 
at an inference level. It's stored in our platform. We can run all sorts of you know, monitoring, troubleshooting workflows, et cetera, on top of that. And then I think what you're getting at is, you know, what happens when you find an issue? You know, how do you actually connect back to the rest of the workflow? And, you know, in that blog post, I think one of the things that really resonated was there's actually, you know, depending on what the root cause is, you, know, you might actually integrate with different systems. And so if the issue is related to a feature, you know, the root cause was actually, let's just say it was a data quality issue, one of your key features of your model, um, you know, you're not receiving data for, or you're sending in missing values for, you know, for that, you know, the, the right place to actually make that fix might end up being at the feature store level, the way you're actually transforming the features from an offline or online perspective, if you're doing any sort of feature lookup, you know, the, the key fix there might be at the feature store level. Um, you know, if it's not really, you can't really drill down and figure out, okay, here's a specific root cause that's bringing it down. But in general, you're noticing that one, an earlier version of the model was doing better right. than this version. You know, we've had people actually integrate back into a model store like MLflow and say, hey, I want to fall back to an older version of my model, or I just want to trigger a retrain. And, you know, if there's things like, you know, retraining hooks that we've had folks kind of trigger or initiate, then rebuild a new model, log it into MLflow, and serve that new model into production. Um, and so that that's kind of what I would say one one part of the, the flow. And then in in all of these, you know, the model serving component is, you know, especially I think about it as kind of the model store and the serving component kind of work together hand in hand. If you can automate that in, in a really good way so that you constantly are aware of which versions of your model are actually live in production and deployed versus just kind of experiments that you're evaluating to put into production. Yeah. So well, yeah. one of the things we saw at Gurgic was, well, firstly, data quality monitoring, understanding data going into models, evaluating the performance of models, all of these things were critical to the business yeah. and had large impacts on revenue. What we also saw is that the tooling to identify problems didn't always lead to actions. Often things would happen like there would be some seasonal change in the data, like there's Ramadan in um, you know Indonesia, and then underlying data changes, user behavior changes, which causes models to perform differently. And data scientists would come to us and say, like, yes, I understand that something's off here, I'm not sure if it's on our model side or if it's the users that are different. Like COVID hits and everybody stays at home. Yeah. I think, that, I know that that's, that is not an easy problem to solve and you can only do so much as an evaluation store as like a data monitoring observability platform. But I think if, if you can unravel that question, like the correlation and causation element of it, uh, you'd be well posi positioned to be probably one of the most critical components in the stack. Um, I don't know if you have a response to that. I have well, different that, questions. But is that where like more of this explainability comes in? Are you explaining that or is that totally, am I just pulling buzzwords out of my ass? <laughs> well, there's explainability. There's an element to what part of the model led to a certain prediction. How does that impact user behavior? There's some way of tying the model that you've trained to the user and their behavior and outcomes. But there's also 
shifting stands of like the users acting differently or the or the world being different and the data being different because it maps onto the world leading to observability anomalies that are not necessarily actionable because the user the, the data scientist doesn't know is the world changing or is my model broken my new model yeah uh, that's hard no that's a great question and here's kind of my you know, my take of the answer on it. And, you know, maybe, maybe interesting to hear. If you have performance metrics, you know, that you're able to calculate in, in the real world. So what I mean by that is you're able to get background truth and actuals and actually evaluate the model performance. You know, you can actually, what you, what I think is missing in, hey, data's changed. Is it my model? Is it the data? You know, the key question that you're actually wanting to ask is the data has changed. Is there an impact to the performance of my model? If there's an impact to the performance of my model, uh, performance of my model and an actual impact to the business, you're going to do something about the data changing. You're either going to rebuild a better model in order to better track those in order to have higher accuracy in order to get, you know, address the business impact. You're going to fix any data quality issues, but that you know one-to-one -one mapping between something's changed from a data perspective to how is it impacting my model is often a really hard jump for people that don't have ground truth or don't have actuals. And so, in that case, you you know the in the in that case, what typically most folks end up doing is actually starting to look at things. I think in that case, it really does become about the threshold that you're setting for what's a big enough change that you're not just going to get alerted for, you know, I have a new field or a new value coming in for a feature, but actually keeping the noisiness of the alerts until it's actually something big that would have caused an impact to your model. Um, did that answer your, your Yeah, that, that doesn't answer the question. Yeah, yeah. I, I think but, an interesting, sorry, go for it. Oh, no, I was going to say, I, I definitely think, though, that, you know, in, in the case about getting back performance and, and actuals and calculating that, it's definitely going to be model specific, right? So, you know, in some ML use cases like lending or uh, insurance, you may not get back your ground truth for several months after you've made the prediction. And so it's just, you know, it does end up depending on the ML use case it's, itself. That ties to my next question quite nicely. So are there specific classes of use cases that you're better positioned to solve today and ones in which you're definitely, you know, not positioned to solve? In the case of the feature stores, for example, we're not really good today at solving computer vision, um, you know, video centric uh, data where it's you know, high dimensional or uh, it's not you know, simple primitives that you're working with or tabular data. Uh, yeah. Does it apply to what you're currently building or not? I think there's, I'd say the Arise platform today, um, you know, doesn't, you know, it's, it doesn't natively support unstructured data. So things like uh, exactly like what you're saying, image or NLP, but there's, you know, some upcoming releases kind of closer to, you know, upcoming releases that are supporting unstructured data. And it's just, you know, it's just because that's what our users are asking for. You know, the most complex models to understand and troubleshoot 
are models that typically take in unstructured data. And so, um, you know, I'd say it's not available today, but short, shortly releasing on, on Arise. And actually one question I have just as a follow-up to that is how, you know, in, in the feature store category, you know, what, you know, cause, cause folks, folks typically ask us, right. If there's something wrong with the feature, you know, I can get alerted and I can go fix it, or I can have something like a feature store that, you know, ideally should be helping us eliminate, you know, some of those data transformation or data quality issues by, by kind of having a, um, a single place to track all of the, the, the feature work that's going on. Um, what do you see in, in practice and how much of that does it eliminate um, versus kind of what types of problems do you think the feature store is good at solving um, versus still, still kind of moving towards solving? Yeah, certainly the data quality aspects are not really well covered today with feature stores. Feature stores certainly solve the, or at least Tecton and certain classes of feature stores solve the transformation problem pretty well. The data orchestration and plumbing and you know, basically running streaming jobs and batch jobs to materialize data into offline and online stores and keeping them readily available for training and serving. I think feature stores are good at that production phase as well as the consumption stage. So if you're training, you get a consistent view of data than what you saw in what you will see in the online case. And that consistency problem was a key one for us at Gojek and feature stores were really good at solving that. And feature stores are good at solving the cataloging and discovery and reuse of features. That's an area of the discovery and reuse where I think there's a lot more to be done but feature stores take a big step in that direction. Nobody's really working on solving that for ML use cases. Yeah. I think there are multiple stages in the feature store where layers or hooks can be added for improved data quality monitoring. So when you're ingesting data, you can validate when you are uh, building a training data set, you can look at drift in that training data sets over time. Even if you ignore the model completely, uh, you can compare the training data set for a specific model to its on what's being served to that model online. And the way we want to do that over time is uh, we use feature services and that feature service, each feature store basically has its own concept here. Uh, in, in the case of Tecton and Feast, we tie the model to features with a relationship called the feature service. And so we can look at how specific features uh, as a group from a consumption perspective change over time if we have better integrations with data quality monitoring and observability tools and evaluation tools. And I think that's going to be critical. So both the looking at a model offline online, as well as looking at data going through that feature store interface and how that changes over time. And I think that's probably going to be one of the big focus areas for feature stores over the next year, certainly for Feast, uh, partly because we see the transformation space as one that has a lot of tools already, and we'd rather integrate there. Um, I think feature stores are really well positioned to address, to to provide the layer to integrate uh, data quality and observability tools. And I don't think that feature stores will be the ones that innovate in that space, but feature stores enable access to that data. And so feature stores in a lot of ways bring a lot of other tools together that are best of breed. and. 
basically facilitate a specific architecture of decoupling models from data. So, 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 so to answer your question, the consistency, the transformation, the production serving, uh, those are areas and the discovery areas where fees, feature stores are really good at solving problems. The data quality monitoring, the observability, the valuation, that's where a lot of real value lies. I think feature stores will integrate well with other tools like Rise um, out there in the, in the space, but um, it's not an area where feature stores are really good at um, solving problems today, but definitely one of massive potential. Yeah, and, and that's why we're doing a blog post together. Um, so I'm, I'm excited about that, but it's, I think the first one out there that'll be between a feature store and, you know, an inference evaluation store. And we're actually tackling, I don't want to give too much away as a teaser, but we're actually tackling exactly one of the things that you mentioned about, you know, the feature store is so interesting because you guys have the offline stream of features as well as the online stream of features. And so, um, you know, there's a really cool integration between Feast and Arise that we'll, we'll release shortly. <laughs> yeah, and we can also, by the time this goes out, it will be, that blog post will be out too. So we can link to that in the description in case anyone wants to check it out and have a read on how the two are integrating. So keeping it moving, I think it's only fair to talk a little bit about that blog post. I mean, we have been diving into the different stores that you need. I was joking with you, Aparna, before we got on here about how this is like a ML Ops mall that you talked about in the blog post because we have so many different stores. We have the evaluation store, the model store, and then the feature store. It's like a MLOps strip mall that you can just walk down and get a little bit of all of it. I would love to hear like if you could wave a wand, right? And just have them all working seamlessly. How would that look? from the end user's perspective and then from the team who has to set it up's perspective, like what would that look like if it were all perfect and dandy and these three stores became this mall that was just that package that you had to have to do MLOps? <laughs> I, I, I still think it's hilarious that you call it the MLOps mall. <laughs> um, but no, they, I didn't even think about it that way until you pointed it out. So that's hilarious. Um, but, you know, I, I actually in my, I think I did it in the blog post, but I actually have recommendations for each of my favorite stores that I think play well and integrate well with other, other stores in that strip mall. Um, obviously, you know, Feast and Tecton's kind of, uh, you know, a highlight in the feature store category. And, you know, before I even get into the specifics of which store, you know, I just wanted to kind of set the, you know, why do we need these stores? Like, what are all of these stores kind of solving? And it, it really does go back to kind of a parallel, which is the software tool chain. You know, if you look at the software tool chain today, there's, you know, GitHub doesn't claim to be your end-to-end -end kind of software tool. You know, it does a specific vertical extremely well, which is similar to, I would say, the model store in the ML tool chain. It stores all the different versions of the uh, of the code that you're writing, um, tracks, you know, code commit IDs or essentially model version IDs, 
And so it tracks all the different versions of the code that you're actually uh, you've actually written, and it enables things like re reproducibility. Um, you know, if you're if you're multiple people working on different versions of that code, how do you handle things like merging? Um, and there's different tools for different parts of that software toolchain. There's you know, issue tracking. Lassian's probably um, you, you know kind of the, the leader in that space. There's observability, infra observability. So tools like Datadog and New Relic and you know that whole you know vertical, which is which is kind of tracking you know different pieces like you know it, you know tracing and logging and different components of infra observability, but the software tool chain really is kind of a parallel to what we're seeing happening today, which is the ML, ML tool chain. And there's different parts of the stack here that are focused on, the feature store is really focused on, like Willem was saying, around transformations, consistency, um, and the model store is really focused on tracking all the different versions of the model. Uh, it's essentially kind of a system of record for all the different models that, that you've built. And so I kind of like to think about it as each of these stores focuses on a specific unit. So the feature stores unit, you can think about it as the feature. Um, the model stores unit is the model. So, you know, that's kind of what it's focused on tracking, the different versions, metadata information, uh, essentially experiment tracking for that, that version of the model. And then the evaluation or the inference stores unit is the inference. So what were the inputs, what were the outputs, what was the ground truth? And so each of these stores have kind of a, I guess, different item that they're selling, that unit. Um, and, you know, the they each kind of track these different components that are essential for that model to actually be successful in the real world. Um, and, I, you know, I think the, you know, if I had to wave a wand and all of this just kind of worked straight out of the gate, you know, I'd say that, you know, we're moving there, but the right hooks between the feature store and the model store, or maybe the model store and the evaluation store, like all of these hooks that would make it seamless to just pick up and kind of plug and play probably still need some examples or work today to actually get, get working. And so for instance, you know, the model store, you know, the model version ID that you're using to track the different versions should match kind of the model versions that those inferences belong to in the inference store. And so there's there's these like, how do you get these things to work, you know, much, much more simply together? And some of it's just kind of, you know, having good examples and documentation that people can follow. But I think, um, you know, there's one coming out between Horizon fees so that it kind of completes a little bit of that circle. But I think getting the, the integration pieces, you know, right across the stack and having good examples, you know, one of the follow, I feel like I'm going to blow my idea, but one of the follow-up blog posts that I have to the only three tools that, that I'm putting out there is actually an example that's using Feast and Tecton um, along with let's say ML flow is the model store and then arise is the evaluation store and kind of showing how all three of those components work together. And I think that those kind of, you know, hooks is, is kind of what's missing today. Would you agree with that Willem or what's kind of your take on to kind of how would you get them all to work together? Yeah, I think we spoke about this previously in a podcast with David Aronchik as well, where part of the challenge there is 
I guess, specifications and standardization, you don't want to force something and create standards in a vacuum or integration yeah. points. Uh, you do want to have, you want to start somewhere, start incrementally adding those hooks or integration points uh, between these systems. So I th think over time we can probably converge on some kind of API standard or at least convention. I think he called it a specification or a standard, a lowercase s. So something that's very organic and very fluid, uh, at least at this stage where it's a little bit more wild wasty in the MLOps world. But over time, there will be more you know, dominant technologies and presumably will you know, eventually gravitate to using those primarily. And the standards will follow on those, just like with Kubernetes, you've got, I wouldn't say it's a standard, but at least the structure of objects in Kubernetes is emulated by a lot of systems and it's relatively well understood in those concepts. Um, so I think that's an area that it's risky to dive into now. And I see a lot of people try and do that in, for example, the BI space. But I think in the MLOps space, we're a little bit more nascent. So I think it's an interesting area uh, I don't know if you had any opinions on standardization and APIs, if there are decisions. That, I mean, there's there's one thing that could be good about that is if somebody's already done the thinking around specific APIs, they'd say like you can use some kind of open standard for logging data uh, instead of having to make those decisions from scratch. Do you, Are you currently using any of those or do you pretty much just from scratch and first principles to figure out what do our users need? Uh, or do you, yeah. do you use existing standards? Yeah, no, that, that's, I, I think, I think one of the key things you just said there is standards for standards sake. You don't just want to sit there and build these standards in a vacuum, but actually kind of see, you know, I, I think the real value is when you start seeing people actually use your tool and another tool and then ask how they did it. So you might have an idea of what an integration might be, but just hearing from users how they've used Feast and MLflow and built their own stack. And do they even need any integration between those two? Or, you know, was, you know, do they feel separate enough that those are just the two tools that they decided to pick up and, and use in the stack? Like, I, I think asking users, seeing how it's organically kind of being used in the, in the, in the communities, the best way to go about go about setting standards. So I, I totally agree with you on uh, on that point. Um, but I do think kind of putting out like all of this kind of in my mind goes down to what's the use case that you're trying to solve. Um, so why do you need a use case between a model store and an inference store? Um, and you know. With a lot of our customers who are also using MLflow, the main use case is, well, whatever I'm building or tracking from my model store, I want to have a one-to-one -one mapping and make sure when I'm deploying it into production, I'm monitoring this specific version and I can go back and rebuild it in my model store. And that was kind of their main use case. And so I think going back to what is the user trying to do with this integration is the best place to kind of start start those types of questions because the integration might be one-sided or another does that make sense like you can try right. right yeah 
Yeah, we have this as well. So you can imagine a feature store compiling down to dbt and running dbt and basically the feature store wraps dbt. Or you can say the feature store integrates with an upstream system like dbt and scrapes its manifest and understands what's upstream. Um, you can imagine the same thing with the observability tools, instrumentation tool, uh, instrument instrumentation tooling. There's, so there are a lot of these like who, who wraps who, and with scheduling, there's another one like an Airflow could execute the feature store. The feature store could have its own scheduler built in. Um, so there's certainly a lot there. Um, I had one more question. I think probably our final question because we're running close on time. But in terms of so, so Arise today is a managed service. Uh, Feast is an open source feature store. I think there are, so we're, we're Linux foundation governed and we don't have intentions to monetize, but on the technical side, we do want to build a, or we are building and have a managed feature store and offering. Um, so the, there's, there's a different go, go to market where you have feature stores, or sorry, uh, products that are open source. In our case, it'll be more open core centric. Uh, th there are obviously risks associated to open sourcing technology. And there's also there's simplicity and focus as a, is, is one of the benefits of having a managed offering where you don't need to manage an open source community. And the downside is you don't get contributions back. Uh, there's a little bit of a different perspective from a community on a managed offering. How do you reason about that? And I think maybe another question is, did you consider open sourcing at any stage? And did you, uh, why did you decide against that? And if you did, um, but just curious to get to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's that's a great question too. So the Arise platform, like you said, is you know, there's some parts that are open source today. So the logging, so the SDKs and the APIs are actually um, open source and you can actually, so the logger component, you can think about it that way, is, is open source. Um, but the platform side of it, the, you know, the data stores on top, all the services that are running on top is um, today closed. We did, um, you know, spend, you know, spend time kind of thinking through, you know, open source or kind of closed source, which one should we kind of tackle? Um, I don't think that, you know, I'm, you know, not open to doing open source down the road or in the future. Um, but I think that there's, you know, one of the things that I really liked about kind of the, you know, call it the, the Michelangelo, you know, from Uber kind of approach was really, you know, they had a, you know, Michelangelo didn't start off all of its different components of its ML stack kind of open sourcing it. And so if you think about, you know, uh, one that everyone uses, Horavod, uh, Horavod or uh, Palette, which is their feature store, or, um, uh, you know, Manifold, which is kind of their visualization pieces. So all of these, they kind of built in-house internally and then started to, you know, you know, nail down kind of the, the core use cases, the kinks related to it, uh, get the use cases really, really tight among a focus group of users, and then eventually actually open sourced it and released it to a broader community. And so I think that, you know, one one kind of that's just one approach of taking the the go to market strategy is kind of having a focused you know, set of users and customers and kind of building that base before you kind of 
release it out to the to the broader community. Um, and so it's just it's just one that we've taken. Um, but I don't think that you know I'm against at all kind of open sourcing it down the road into the future. It just like you said, there is that overhead of kind of the maintenance and et cetera that that you do have to take into consideration. And you know, it's I think it's just when do you want to bite it off or, or you know when do you want to take yeah. that without yeah. uh, pressure. Cool, that's great, uh, Demetrius. Maybe you had any other questions? I kind of wanted to ask about this, but it, I guess it'll have to be real quick. About since we were talking about standards, and then you just mentioned Michelangelo, and how the standards were brought to that. Like I, I've also heard that inside huge companies you have to play the dance with standards and how to make sure that everything plugs and plays. And uh, from what I understand, when Michelangelo was built, it wasn't all built with the idea of going end to end. It was these little pieces that you could plug and play. But I'm not sure. I didn't get the full story. So maybe someone who was there could actually break it down and let us know how those standards played out there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I feel like you got to ask Mike about these two. <laughs> uh, but what I was going to say was, um, and you're right, that's kind of how it did um, start off is, you know, there was a central ML team, Michelangelo, and they started, they're kind of taking the big, across all of Uber ML teams, what were the biggest requests and kind of building infrastructure, but Uber was scaling so fast and ML was growing so quickly that you know internally you know teams started building things to help themselves and help their own teams and then other teams started to use it um so it it kind of organically became part of a you know michelangelo would then come and say hey i you know a lot of teams are using this you know can we kind of you know we can take over kind of making this and supporting this and kind of expanding this and so you know it was it was just a fact of how fast Uber ML was probably growing and teams needed to start building things just to help them support their own needs. And it was just so good. They started incorporating it into the, the bigger Michelangelo. And yeah, I, I, you'd say today it is a little bit more of an end-to-end -end view of the stack itself. Um, and yeah, I think that's what all of these kind of uh, you know, players like Arise and Feast and Tekton Market are kind of going for is, you know, how do you end up building this ideal end-to-end -end workflow for people that don't work at an Uber or don't work at a Facebook or Google so yeah. that they can put together this stack themselves? Yeah, and I've heard a lot of people talk about how they see the canonical stack happening, just like we've seen the mean or the Mern stack happen they eventually feel like there's going to be some kind of stack that you're going to have as a the de facto. And I know a lot of companies are trying to vie for that position right now and really make sure and make clear that they etch out a piece of this. So if there is a stack, it's like, we want to make sure that we're in it. And it feels very obvious to me that monitoring pieces are going to be a big part of that stack, also feature stores. And then you can't do anything if you can't serve the model. 
So the three tools that you put forth, I think are brilliant. And I really enjoy this conversation. I also kind of, the reason I remember all of this about these three tools, I have a confession to make is because when uh, one of the community members in the MLOps community, Byron Allen wrote like what he learned in the last year from watching the MLOps community podcast. One thing that he said was there's two tools and they get you 90% of the way there. And he talked about like a feature store and Kubeflow and how like Kubeflow, you know, can do so much. And then you have the feature stores that can do where Kubeflow is missing. But then reading that back after I read your blog, it was obvious that like, oh yeah, that other 10% is really important. And so when you plug in the model uh, monitoring piece or just the monitoring piece in general, that is so important to have in the full stack as we see it for the machine learning development life cycle. So that's all we got for today. Aparna, this was awesome. I really appreciate you coming here and talking to us about this. I know you are on an island somewhere. And so all the more awesome that you were able to come and chat to us. Thanks again. Thanks again, Demetrius. Thanks for inviting me to be on here.